0: Our epistle lesson is found in Romans chapter 1. You'll see it marked in your bulletins that we'll be working through verse 25. But after my fifth point at the verse 23, I decided to cut short. So Romans 1, 18, verse 23, through verse 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we read of heavy things, we confess that it is only in your light that we see light. Our minds, our understanding too has been darkened, and we are dependent upon you. In the power of your spirit, that you lead us in your truth, that you teach us. And so come, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. It's in the late 1970s, early 1980s that medical professionals became increasingly alarmed by an unusual number of deaths among seemingly healthy individuals from a relatively known and understood strand of pneumonia. The pneumonia was being treated aggressively by traditional means that were almost 100% effective, but yet patients continued to die. It was a puzzle. It was unknown at the time that the pneumonia, a common disease, was only a symptom of the true underlying problem, that these seemingly healthy patients were suffering from a virus, a virus today that we're familiar with, known as the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. HIV has the capacity to nullify the immune system, to suppress it, rendering patients unable to fight off even the most simple of of infections. And so a common case of pneumonia became a deadly case. But without this diagnosis, without this understanding in the late 70s and 80s, without this knowledge, doctors were left unable to address the problem. They were only treating symptoms, symptoms that were truly manifesting themselves, but weren't able to address the underlying condition, the main issue. And in dealing with ourselves, human beings, something very similar is true. We have to correctly diagnose the problem when we're dealing with God. We have to understand our particular plight if our real disease is going to be addressed. It's very possible to address all kinds of symptoms. Symptoms that are manifestations of the real underlying problem. But if we're to address really what's going on with you and what's going on with me, what's going on in our world, we have to have the right diagnosis. Without the right diagnosis, we treat only symptoms, and death still occurs. And this is Paul's underlying presupposition as he comes to the book of Romans. In chapter 1, he has mentioned the introductory material and then stated his main point— that the gospel manifests the righteousness of God, and it lays out the way for us to be right with God, that the righteous will live by faith. And this presupposes then an understanding of the problem. And in the second half of chapter one, all the way through chapter three, Paul will take a long and slow and detailed look. He'll do the autopsy, you could say, on the human problem what it is that animates us, and what causes our sickness. And so Paul details and he documents something for us. We're told in verse 18 exactly what that is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is the formal statement of our disease. The true underlying condition is ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so what's important for us this morning, of preeminent importance, even though not perhaps the most exciting of topics, is to take that long and slow detailed journey to do the autopsy on unrighteousness and on ungodliness. Because what Paul is laying out here is that this is the primal sin of humanity. He's speaking in universal terms and he's speaking about all human beings. That we are thoroughly corrupt and that we have participated in this primal rebellion. And so, this morning in verses 18 through 23, five different aspects of this rebellion for us to consider. First, we are all implicated. If you look in verse 18. There's a parallel here. Last week we read that the righteousness of God is revealed, that is the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of God to keep his promises, and now we find that the wrath of God is revealed. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's been common for many when reading these verses to think that this simply refers to the vices of the Gentile world. If you remember, one of the fundamental issues that Paul is having to address in this congregation in Rome is the division between Jew and Gentile. No doubt, some of Paul's audience, especially that Jewish audience with a bit of pride and self-righteousness, would have delighted to read this well-known catalog of Gentile sins. They were outside of God's covenant. They had no use for his moral standards. And so this was a fairly familiar catalog of what went on in the Gentile world. But here's the catch. Paul speaks about an exchange that takes place in this passage, an exchange where the glory of God is given away and substituted for other images. This was certainly a problem amongst the Gentiles, but for any biblically literate reader of this passage, they would have known something else as well. And that Jewish audience would have picked up on it, because the language that Paul uses references three Old Testament passages, Psalm 106, Psalm 115, and also Jeremiah 2. And these passages are not concerned with Gentile idolatry. Rather, they're concerned with the idolatry that was in the Old Testament church in Israel. And this is the point. It's not just the Gentiles. And that same pride can infect us today, where we hear this condemnation, that the wrath of God is being revealed against human unrighteousness and ungodliness. And we tend to think that this passage applies to this community or that community. We like to project and to look outward, to apply it to particular groups of people. But Paul will arrive at his point in chapter 3 that we'll see in a few weeks. In verse 10, he announces that none is righteous, no one. He goes to the extent of human language to express this to us, that the wrath of God is being revealed against our ungodliness, against our unrighteousness. That we do not have the privilege of making distinctions between human beings. That you and I do not have that prerogative. And that we cannot faithfully read this and understand it if our primary preoccupation is to apply it to other people. If it betrays this group or that group, and we delight in putting them in that dock, then we've missed the point. Because this is a blanket judgment, a statement of our condition, of who we are in front of God. It includes you, it includes me. It's a statement about all of us. And so we're all implicated. Second thing, as we pursue this autopsy, we see that in this condition we suppress the truth. If you follow in the last half of verse 18, against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. And here Paul is explaining another revelation of God that takes place. We've read of the revelation of God's righteousness. We've read of the revelation of God's wrath. Then we discover here a revelation that takes place through the works of God's hands, through the creation itself. We're told that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, are known and put on display. They are made visible in God's works of creation. and This was God's design in fashioning and forming the world. That is, God who is invisible would be known to us through the works of his hands. That the world itself would function something like a mirror. That it was a mirror of God's glory. It was the theater of resplendent beauty in which God gave liberally to human beings. And that human beings were then to respond in thanksgiving and gratitude to God. That God's benevolence in creation would induce them to love and to serve him. This was the original design of the world. Paul argues that that revelation is clear, but that there is a problem. We suppress it. You see, he's not saying that the problem is that God is not speaking clearly. No, God has spoken clearly through the revelation in creation. But the problem is with you, and it's with me that we hold it back, we press it down, we want to control it, we want to suppress it. It's known, but we choose to overlook it. Over the past several years, before going to bed, I've taken up the task of rereading John Grisham's law novels. You perhaps are familiar with them. One of the ones that i read recently was titled The Guardians. The main character is a man named Quincy Miller, who was convicted and sentenced to the death chamber, unjustly. He hadn't committed the crime, but there was the suppression of evidence by the authorities that led to his conviction, so unjustly, he was on death row. As you read the story, you become increasingly angry because it's clear that the evidence has been suppressed. The authorities knew that Quincy Miller hadn't created the crime. But the evidence being suppressed put him in the dock and led to his verdict of guilty. It was being held back. And friends, this is the nature of suppression. It's not a neutral activity. It's active. It has a certain malice to it. And this is what Paul is saying about us, is that we, having clearly received the revelation of God in the works of his hands in creation, we suppress it. We want to hold it back. But Paul says, nonetheless, that we're without excuse. We know enough of what God has revealed, and so we're guilty before him without excuse. Third. As we pursue the autopsy, we see that we also snub God. If you follow in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. All the revelation of God and the works of his hands was designed to lead us back to him, to the fountain of all good things. This was God's original design for human beings to commune with Him, that we would enjoy God's good gifts in the creation, and that we would walk with Him, and that we would, be, that we would flourish and be whole, satisfied in all of God's gifts, and all of God's goodness. But this entire design was short-circuited, and it leads to the primal sin of humanity, And that is that there was this personal rejection of God. We find it summarized here for us in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That the revelation that was present in creation, it was suppressed and ignored And rather than the revelation leading us to give thanks to God and to worshiping Him and honoring Him and communing with Him, we turned the other way. We became darkened in our thinking and foolish in our hearts. But what's so important for us to grasp here as we talk about this snub of God that's taken place in our midst is that it is incredibly personal that it was not some arbitrary rule set up by God that we perhaps happened to break and then God somehow angry with us. Know that this offense, this snub, is incredibly personal because God fashioned the world for you and he filled it with his benevolence and his kindness and all of his good gifts so that you would offer thanks to him, so that you would honor him and that you and I both are the subjects of that revelation and that we're guilty of not responding in the proper way. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are instructed not to eat of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Many read this passage and think it's just a capricious command, rather arbitrary, don't eat of that and prove whether you love me. But it's important to dig deeper as to what this tree stood for, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because what that tree stands for is the one who has the right to judge, to differ between good and evil. And so when human beings ate of that tree, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they were declaring themselves the ones who were competent to decide what was right and wrong. And friends, we can see very clearly that that's no innocent activity. That's not a simple mistake. It's not a trivial error. It was defying what God said. It was throwing off the yoke of God and the harness of God. It was to say that I want to be the judge of what is right and wrong. I want to determine what is true and what is false. I want to be the one who determines light and dark. This is the snub of God that has taken place in each of our lives. It's the pride of humanity expressed in that autonomous act and is particularly defiant and ugly and incredibly personal. Fourth, in this autopsy, we also discover that we're self-deceived. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Self-deception is normally defined as this. It's a choosing to see the world and the choosing to see yourself the way you want it to be. And the difficult thing about self-deception is that we're the last to acknowledge it. Self-deception is designed to be defensive. It's designed to shield out every other message. And so we may well be self-deceived, and we not know it. And human beings, because of our primal sin, in which we suppress the truth and hold that back, we claim to be wise when we're actually fools, that this is what is happening in this rebellion against God. Because self-deception requires a level of self-knowledge, we're blind to it. When we see it in others, we become particularly sensitive to it. As a young pastor, I remember my first strong encounter with self-deception, a woman who simply believe things about herself that weren't true. I would pull my hair out trying to explain it, wanting her to see an alternate reality. But she would continue to assert, no, this is the way things are. This is what I've done. This is who I am. And it was easy to think to myself, how foolish, how self-deceived she is. But here's the deal. We too... Are self deceived. We participate in that foolishness. We've claimed to be wise in our rebellion against God. We don't accurately know ourselves. We are disconnected from ourselves. We don't have proper knowledge. We too have been led into a lie. One of the more difficult aspects of the autopsy. And finally, we see in verse 23 that we create our own gods. Paul continues, and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what human beings do. We live with a consciousness of God that we suppress He's revealed his invisible attributes to us, and we know those. We hold them back. But because we've been created for that communion, we desire some sort of religion, some sort of ultimate meaning, some sort of joy. And so we craft and fashion gods for ourselves, gods that will bring that meaning gods that will give us some sense of divinity, gods that will give us some sense of joy. And it's critical to observe here in the passage how it exactly works. Because we see what he says is that those gods are crafted in their own image, mortal man, or from birds and animals and creeping things, that is, other things in the creation. And this exchange that takes place in which the true God is set aside in our suppression, is then substituted for things from his good creation. We take things from within this life and we elevate them to places of honor, putting them in heights to which they were never designed to ascend. And we begin to bow and we prostrate ourselves before things, that were never meant to bear the weight that we assign to them. And what happens? They destroy you. Those things that you begin to worship from within the creation, good gifts that God liberally shares with you, that you then substitute for God, those things ultimately destroy you because they were never designed to bear that weight. Augustine, in his famous book, The Confessions, captures this beautifully. It's book four, chapter 12, if you have interest. And he explains there that God gives us the good gifts of creation, and he shares those with us for our enjoyment. God is not a prudish God. He gives them to us for our enjoyment, and that we are to return thanks to him as we participate in and enjoy those good gifts. But then Augustine warns from his own experience, in which he sought meaning and joy in every way, in pleasure, in philosophy, in learning, and in pride and ambition, and at the end of that long and hard road, he gives this warning that these good gifts can overtake us. Listen carefully to what he says. The good, referring to the good thing you love, is from him. But only in so far as it is used for him is it good and sweet. But with justice will it become bitter if you, as a deserter from him, unjustly love what comes from him. Whither do you walk farther and farther along these hard and toilsome roads? There is no rest to be found where you seek it. Seek what you seek. But it lies not where you seek it. You seek a happy life in the land of death, but it is not there. How can you find a happy life where there is no life? That God has not assigned life to be found inside of his created gifts in and of themselves and by themselves, but yet this is where we run. We attempt to find God and to find our joy and our pleasure. Our identity and our worth, we attempt to find it inside the things of the creation. We do so in in, in innumerable ways, looking for that happy life. But Augustine says, you seek a happy life where God is not assigned happiness. That there's one place for ultimate fulfillment and joy. And that nothing else will have its proper place in life until you know Him, the fountain and giver of everything. Augustine then concludes a few chapters later Woe to my proud soul, which hoped that if I fell away from you, referring to God, it would have something better. It turned and turned again upon its back and sides and belly, but all places were hard to it, for you alone are rest. He uses the metaphor of sleep, and he says there was nothing but restlessness. The bed was hard and uncomfortable. There was no place that he could find, and he searched, and he searched hard. There's no rest, there's no peace in this journey that we take out into creation, where we attempt to take the good gifts of God and have those become the ultimate things in our life. They promise life, but in the end, we find that they're empty. And we're delivered over to futility, endless restlessness. And friends, it is at the end of this, at the end of understanding the autopsy, what the true animating problem is for human beings, that we're not just a little sick, but there is a primal rebellion that has taken place that implicates every one of us That there are no exceptions. That the problems are not out there. They are here. They reside in us. That we suppress the truth of God. We have held that back. That we have snubbed God. That we've not received His revelation properly and given thanks to Him and honored Him and worshipped Him. That we too are self-deceived. That we believe things about ourselves that are simply not true. And that we create our own gods. And it is at the end of that diagnosis that we feel the weight of sin. We feel the weight of the problem. And many would say, well, this is not what people want to hear, they want encouragement. They want good news in the middle of a pandemic. We need something to cheer us up. Friends, the cheer of the gospel can never be heard rightly until we do the full autopsy, until the true problem is understood. That the word Paul speaks in verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith, that will never make sense until we understand the plight until we perceive the problem that you and I participate in. Because we find at the end of this autopsy, in this diagnosis, that there is none righteous, not one. And there is no righteous deed that we can do. And so what is the way out for a sinner trapped in his self-deception, in his ingratitude, in his idolatry? What hope is there? Are we simply supposed to give up and throw up our hands? And this is where the word of God's righteousness, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, the righteousness of God manifested in Jesus and in the preaching of the gospel becomes good news because it's here that we find reconciliation with this God not because of any achievement or accomplishment, because we've seen that we can do nothing, but because this God has not forgotten us. He is righteous. He is just. And he has remembered the cause of his creation and what he made and what he fashioned in his love and what he formed for us, this God in Jesus is now rescuing. And friends, we need the problem. We need it in its full seriousness, or we'll simply be treating symptoms. But when we have this problem, we can understand the solution, that it is God's grace revealed in Jesus that doesn't require good works from us, that doesn't require that we please him because we can't. What it requires is we look in faith, helpless dependence, asking that our rebellion be forgiven and knowing that this one righteous one, Jesus, was delivered over on our behalf and that he was raised for our justification that we can stand right with God. That is good news. Righteous by faith in the work of another. And so hear the critique, and then in the critique as you hear that most devastating news about yourself. Hear the good news. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words. They level us, they destroy us, they empty us out, and they call us to renounce ourselves. but yet they're not the only words that you share. Yes, your wrath is being revealed. But even more profoundly, your righteousness has been revealed as well. And Jesus Christ has come. He has suffered. He has died. And he has been raised. And in him, through faith, we can be right with you. Thank you for this gift. It's unspeakable. In light of our rebellion, we deserve nothing but wrath. But you are gracious. Open our hearts to receive that with thanksgiving and joy this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.